Today, as promised, I will do an exposition of a passage of scripture that speaks specifically to the issue of spousal sexual abuse and conjugal rights, which is also much in the news today. It has arisen, of course, as you know, because of the proposed amendment to the Sexual Offenses Act of 2009. Now, my reason for doing so today is to help Christians respond to the current discussions from a biblical perspective and to counter some of the extreme positions that have been publicly proclaimed as being biblical. Surprisingly, both by men and by women, but predominantly by men. Now, I will try not to spend too much time speaking to the legal aspects in this setting, but rather to focus primarily on the biblical teaching or theology regarding spousal sexual responsibilities and privileges. I believe that this will automatically answer many of the questions that have arisen in recent days and will continue to do so. I don't know if you realize how important this particular amendment is and how it impacts the Christian's view of marriage. You need to think about this very, very carefully. And the reason why I'm doing this is because I believe it's important for us as Christians to be able to respond to these things when they come up in our society from a biblical perspective. And that's why we're doing this today. Now, I will allow the text, the Bible itself, to guide us in our study. So let's begin. I want you to take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to read from the King James Version. Then I will give my extended paraphrase of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now, concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for man not to touch a woman. Now really, this is a problematic verse to interpret. A lot of people don't realize the hermeneutical difficulties here of interpreting this passage because we've come so used to simply quoting it. We think we understand it. But this is a very problematic passage for many. The phrase, to touch a woman, as given in the King James Version, has nothing to do with fondling or petting a woman, as many believe it is. Instead, it is a figure of speech, we call it a euphemism, and it means to have sexual relations. Also, Paul is actually quoting or stating the words of the writer that is writing to him, he is actually quoting the belief of the person or persons who are writing him. In other words, these are not Paul's words or what he believes. He's simply stating what the writer has said. And so this is how I paraphrase it in order to understand it. I call it the ARL expanded paraphrase. Now, with reference to the issue you wrote me about in which you state, and I quote, it is preferable for a man not to have sexual relations. Now in context, and I'll demonstrate this, it means in context, even with his own wife. And we'll see that as we go through here. In other words, 
The Corinthians who wrote the letter was informing Paul that their theology of sexual purity has concluded that sexual relations was such a spiritually negative action that it should not be practiced even within marriage. That was the extreme position that they took. And in order to understand this passage, you must see that, and we're going to demonstrate why we say this from the text. This entire chapter deals with Paul's response to this, what I call, off-the-chain remark. In the first seven verses of the chapter, he discusses the issue of sexual relations within marriage, those who are married. Then he goes on to do the same with those who were once married. And finally, he deals in the latter part of the chapter with those who were never married. So he deals with this particular issue in this entire chapter. Now, you, you may ask, how and why did these Corinthians come up with such an extreme position concerning sex within marriage? In fact, concerning sex itself. A careful study of the epistle reveal the clues and the answer to this question. You see, because Paul actually deals specifically with the practical outworking of these odd views in chapter 6. In chapter 6. Especially verses 12 through 17. And these verses are important to understand what he is saying in chapter 7. And one of the reasons why we misinterpret and misapply chapter 7 is because we disregard chapter 6. We snatch it. We tear it out of its context. And so we come up many times with erroneous interpretations. So now let me read from the New Living Translation, which shows the dialogue, because there's a dialogue that is going on in this passage, which is not brought out in the other versions. There's a dialogue. In other words, the Corinthians are saying something, and Paul is answering back. And we have to see that, otherwise we miss it. Verse 12. You say, I am allowed to do anything. That's the Paul is saying, this is what you say. In other words, they're saying, I can do anything in the flesh because we don't believe the flesh is eternal. It's only temporal. It's not really significant. It, it doesn't matter what you do. That is a part of the belief, and we're going to see that in the text shortly. This reveals their attitude toward the body, the flesh, which they believed was evil and only temporal. Some people believe that. And believe it or not, we have people today who believe that the body is evil in itself. And anything done within the body is also evil. Even sexual relations in or out of marriage. Because, they say, the flesh is not good. Some say it's actually it's even an illusion. It's not real. And the Corinthians were picking up some of that belief. The only thing that mattered to them was the spiritual. To use a pun, they were saying that what was done in the flesh was immaterial. It was of no value, it was of no consequences. Therefore, if it didn't matter, I could do anything with my body I want to, and it would not be a problem. This allowed them to participate in all kinds of immorality without a conscience that it is wrong because it wouldn't go into eternity because it was material and not spiritual. And so Paul says, if you say I am allowed to do anything, Paul realized, but I say not everything is good for you. 
got the text. Not everything is good for you. And even though I am allowed to do anything as you say, I must not become a slave to anything. That's Paul's response. This is this back and forth going on here. You say, I am allowed to do anything, but I say, not everything is good for you. And even though Paul is saying, you believe I am allowed to do anything, I am saying to you that you must not become a slave to anything. Do you see it? It's important for us to see this. In other words, I must not allow the flesh to dominate my actions as the Corinthians were doing. Now he goes on to verse 13. You say, Food was made for the stomach, and the stomach for food. Paul replies, that's true. Though someday God will do away with both of them. You see the back and forth here. In other words, you got the physical right, but not the spiritual. You got the physical right, but not the spiritual. Paul then begins to present what I call a theology of the ownership of our bodies. Now, you're probably going to hear some things you've not heard too often. Certainly not in the discussions that you've heard on the talk shows. It's very important for us now to pay attention. So I'm going to go through this very slowly. Because I want you to see what the Word of God is teaching concerning this very current, relevant issue here. Paul goes on and he says, But you can't not say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. Notice now, you say, I can do anything. Hmm? You say that. But here's one thing you cannot say. You cannot say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. In other words, God did not make the body to commit sexual immorality. Therefore, to use it for that purpose is to behave abnormally. You understand? I get this very carefully now. You cannot say that God made our bodies to be involved in sexual immorality. Therefore, if that is true, if you use it for that purpose, you're behaving unnaturally, abnormally, because you're doing something that God did not create your body for you to do it with. You understand the fault? You see it? Paul is saying, this is an obvious fact, one that cannot be refuted successfully. God did not make our bodies to commit sexual immorality. No one can successfully refute that. They were made for the Lord, he says. Look at your Bible. They were made for the Lord, the body. And the Lord cares about our bodies. Now I want you to see this. He's giving a theology about our bodies. The ownership of our bodies. The first thing he really clearly says was not created for immorality. Now he says God created it. And because he created it, he cares for it. Our bodies were made for Jesus Christ. Now did you get that? Our bodies were made for Jesus Christ. Then he says in verse 14, And God will raise up from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. I want you to see he's saying this in the context of why Jesus made our bodies and why our bodies belong to him. 
In other words, he thinks so much out about this body that he one day is going to turn it into a body just like Jesus Christ. Jesus cares then how we use the body that was made for him, even to the point of transforming it at the resurrection, just as he did the body of Christ. Do you see the significance then of our bodies to Jesus Christ? Paul goes on in verse 15. Don't you realize? It's in your Bibles. I want you to see it in your Bibles. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Is that in your Bible? Now this is even a deeper and more spiritual truth that our bodies belong to Jesus Christ. Now the apostle says, your body is an actual part of the body of Christ, spiritually speaking. In other words, the implication is what you do with your body, you take Christ along with you to do it. Did you get that? I didn't write this last night. What you do with your body, because it belongs to Christ, not only that, it's a part of him. Whatever you do with your body, you take him along with you when you do it. He then asked these Corinthians, applying the spiritual truth. Look at the Bible. Should a man, by the way, all of this passage here is written to men. Now later on there's a whole section to women, but this part here is taken to men because it seems that these were the guys who were really uh, fooling around. Should a man take his body? Now notice now, his body up to this point now is whose body? It's Christ's body. It belongs to him. So I want you to see an ownership here now. Our body is not only ours, our body is also Christ's. So when he says his body, my body, we're meaning Christ's body. Isn't that right? Should a man take his body, which is a part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Just to ask the question is condemning. Not only disgusting, but condemning. Should a man take his body, which is a part of Christ, Jesus Christ, the Savior, the risen Lord, and join it? Notice the word join. Because this sexual immorality is a very, very serious action. Very, very, sometimes you don't regard how serious it is and what happens when two people are joined together physically speaking. But the Bible does. And join it, unite it. Here's a phrase, I'm going to explain it. Marry it, not in the real sense but in the sense of being joined physically to a prostitute? That's his question. Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Paul's answer is quick and absolute. Never! Shouldn't be done. Wrong. Abnormal. Wrong use of the body that was created by Jesus Christ for his own purpose, and it belongs to him. Wrong. Never, 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 never. Shouldn't be done. He explains, verse 16. Don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes what? One body with her. That's the importance of this act. There's a union that is made. Notice, for the scriptures say the two are united at one. Now when Paul says the scriptures say, he's just saying that God says. Because the scriptures are the word of God. Isn't it right? God says the two 
are united into one. Now notice now he's talking about a Christian even in, in this context. But anyone who commits sexual immorality forges a union with the person with whom they have that relationship. You see, it appears that many Corinthians, even Christians, were frequenting the pagan temples in Corinth where religious prostitution was a part of their worship experience. That's why you have to understand the background of Corinth to understand some of the things here. Today, this morning, we had a wonderful time when a praise team came and they led us and we sang. And we said we were offering worship to God. Isn't that right? Do you know how they did it in Corinth? By performing sexual acts at the altar to the God. That's how they did it. They called it worship. And it appears that Corinthians were going there to take part in it. Having this belief that what they were doing in the flesh, in the body, was not important at all. God wouldn't regard it as anything. Why were they doing that? We will see in a moment. It's because it appears that some were not being fulfilled at home. And so they were going to the temple. We'll see that in a moment. And so these Christians, men, these Christian men were doing this while actually thinking that it did not matter because of their view of the flesh. It was not eternal, therefore it didn't matter. Some were also going to the temple because their mate was withholding themselves because they thought it was a sinful thing to do. I'm not going to have sex because it's too dirty. It's too impure. And I'm a Christian and I am pure. So I'm not going to have my spirit contaminated through this act. That's what they believe. And so, the husband is trying to be fulfilled. The wife says, no, that's too dirty. Spiritually speaking, so the husband says, I have to get it fulfilled. Although they mean it, so I'm going to the prostitute. I'm going to the temple. That's the context. But now I want you to see Paul's implication here. Paul is actually implying that every woman, or man for that matter, who have sexual relations with somebody else's spouse is a prostitute. Why? Because as he will explain later, they were taking something that did not belong to them. They were being paid with a resource that did not belong to them. So Paul is implying that every act of adultery is an act of prostitution, spiritually speaking. Because you're taking something that doesn't belong to you. You're being paid with something that does not belong to the person who's paying you. You'll see that as we go along. This is serious business here. These individuals going to the temple were defrauding the legitimate spouse of what belonged to them. He's going to say this very clearly in a moment. Paul teaches that it is a biblical and theological fact that sexual relations is so meaningful and so spiritual. It is such a spiritual act. It is not only a physical act, it is also a spiritual act. This is so vital of a relationship, Paul says, and Jesus says, and God the Father says, that it forges a bond of unity between the participants, married or not. Now, it doesn't create a marriage. Please don't leave us saying that I taught that. It doesn't create a marriage, mind you. But it's an act, an experience 
that belongs only to the marriage relationship. So when it's done outside, it's fraudulent. It's teething. Paul can explain that in a moment. This relationship should be reserved for the marriage. That's why the writer of the Hebrews could say it is the marriage bed that is undefiled. Actually, he's saying it's only the marriage bed. Now, that's another figure of speech. The marriage bed has to do with sexual relations. That is undefiled. That is pure. In other words, sexual relationships is only pure before God if it is done within marriage. Outside of that, it is dirty, it is filthy, it is impure, and it is an act of prostitution. Paul then describes the difference relationship when it comes to union of spirit with Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in verse 17. But, now that's a strong contrast, when you join with a prostitute, a relationship is made with the flesh. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now I want you to see the same phrase, joined with the Lord. There's a special union that takes place when we receive Jesus Christ as Savior. There's a union that is established. It's a spiritual one. It has its parallel in what happens in marriage when husband and wife are joined in the flesh. Both are meaningful. Both are significant. Now notice what Paul says. By the way, when he says here, the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit of him is talking about Christians because only Christians are joined to the Lord. But then he goes on now. He says, run from sexual sin. He means they walk away. He ain't say jog. He say run. King James say, I believe, flee. Fast as you can. Get away from it. Don't go towards it. He then goes on to explain in deeper detail the theology of the body. Notice what he says. Verse 18. No other sin so clearly affects the body. See the emphasis on the body here? No other sin, this is the word of God, no other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. In other words, sexual immorality makes an impact upon the body in a way that nothing else you can ever do does. This is a different kind of sin. This is a sin of a different genre. It's unique, not only in its positive aspect, but also in its negative aspect. It curses as strong as it blesses. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. Notice now. Why? For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. This is a sin you inflict upon yourself. Now remember, this yourself is connected to Jesus Christ. Now we'll forget that here. Upon yourself. I want you to notice that as we go through, especially in this discussion, when we hear about, especially women, and women are not saying this in any disparaging way, my body is mine. Now the man comes to the other opposite, the other extreme, your body belongs to me. Both of them saying, I could do what I want. The Bible knows nothing about that. Both of those positions are erroneous. Notice, sexual relations outside of marriage is a sin against one's own body. And because our body is a part of Christ's body, it is also a sin 
against him. He explains that in verse 19. Look at your Bibles. Don't you realize Paul is a great teacher? He's saying to these Corinthians, you should know what I'm talking about. A lot of Christians read the scriptures but don't know anything. They should. They could quote the scriptures, they could say the words, but they don't know what it means. Don't you realize, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Now you see why it's important to realize the impact of Christ living within us. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? The body now belongs to Christ who is made by him. Now it tells us that the Holy Spirit lives within it. No, living is not even the right word. Worshiping in it. Because the temple is a place of worship. That means what we do in this body, whether we realize it or not, is an act of worship towards God. This heavy stuff, eh? Don't you realize that your body is the temple of this Holy Spirit who dwells, who lives, who resides within you and was given to you by God? This is a the theology of the body, the body that we don't treat too well sometimes. Body that we carry and take it any place, anywhere and do anything with it without realizing that it belongs to God the Spirit of God dwells within it and is a place of worship. It doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives within our body, making it a temple where divine services are performed on an ongoing basis. All our life is an expression of worship to God, whether you realize it or not. God either accepts that worship or he rejects it. But it's always going on. You come here on Sunday mornings, I'm coming to worship. No. You as a worshiper is coming to join other worshipers. You've been worshiping all the while. But not all of your worship was necessarily accepted by God. It's unclean, impure, spotted, blemished. God wouldn't accept it. The doors of this temple does not close like the doors of Calvary Bible Church it doesn't close divine worship is performed without ceasing in your body and in mine now here's Paul's application of this profound truth you do not belong to yourself in context your body does not belong to you so, man, you got to stop talking about my wife's body is mine and I could do what I want with it. Nonsense. Women, you've got to stop saying my body is mine and I could do what I want with it. Nonsense. Your body does not belong to you alone. When he says you do not belong to yourself in context, it means your body does not belong to you. It belongs to Christ. It belongs to the Father. It belongs to the Holy Spirit who lives within that body. Here is why that is true. For God bought you with a high price. What's that high price? The precious blood of Jesus Christ without spot. 
without blemish. That's why I say to you again, the most important thing on this earth is the believer. Now, I say the church, but let's personalize it, individual. The believer, your body, of course, is your all self, but in concept, your body is the most precious thing on the face of this earth. Why? Because it was purchased with the blood of Christ. God bought you with a high price. A high price, not just any price. A high price. The highest could ever be given. No one could outbid this price. The blood of Jesus Christ. That's what it cost God to have your body. Notice the conclusion. If this is true, and it is, you must honor God with your body. Now in this context, it has to do with sexual relationships. How you become involved in that. You must honor God with what you do with your body. And remember, the body was not created for immorality. So if you perform immorality in that body, you are doing a dishonorable thing. Now in context, as I said, this is talking about your body. Now listen carefully. Your body, my body, my spouse's body was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, when we talk about being purchased by the blood of Christ, all we think of, oh, that means I am not going to hell, I go to heaven. No. God purchased your body so your body could be lived out in a holy fashion on this earth to demonstrate what he is like. He purchased it with his own blood. Therefore, the only natural, reasonable, spiritual response to this fact is that we honor God with our body. We don't honor ourselves. First, we honor God. Paul then moves right into the issue of spousal sexual responsibility. And that's our focus for today. All of that was introduction. Because you see, you couldn't understand this next passage if you didn't understand this. He moves right into now the issue of spousal sexual responsibilities, responsibilities within marriage. He applies his theology of the ownership of our bodies to the marriage relationship. That's why he says in verse 1, Now, in light of all of this, concerning the issue you wrote me about in which you state, it is preferable for a man not to have sexual relations with his wife. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. Now, we've looked at verse 1 before. So let's move on to verse 2. Paul says, really, nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. This verse is packed with information that we need to know. Look at nevertheless in this version. That's really a weak translation. Now this says, but that's a better one. This Greek preposition here, but, indicates a strong contrast, an opposition statement, as it were, to what was just said. In other words, Paul's response to this idea that it's preferable for a man not to have sexual relations with his wife, his response is quick, and it's opposite to what is being said by these individuals. He says, wrong! 
That's the best way, the way to look at it. Wrong. Not so. Sexual immorality is avoided in marriage by the fact. This is what has been said in verses 2 and 3. Sexual immorality is avoided in marriage. Remember now, these Corinthians had the idea that that was wrong. Because they were being... Uh, they were spiritually impure. That was a spiritually impure, impure action. Paul says wrong. Sexual immorality is avoided in marriage by the fact that the husband is designed by God to have sexual relationships. Now, here's my expanded translation. With his own personal, exclusive sexual mate. And the wife is to have sexual relationships with her own personal, exclusive, sexual mate. In fact, this is a major purpose for marriage. Sexual exclusivity. Are you getting this, the meaning of this? This is what marriage is all about. To have some for your very self. Not anybody else supposed to have. To provide the fulfillment to a God-given desire. Marriage is that institution which supplies you with a personal exclusive resource for having this fulfillment. That's what he's saying. One man, one woman for life is the idea. Remember now, Paul is still describing and defining a theology of the body. It belongs to God. It was purchased by the blood of Christ. It is indwelled by the Holy Spirit, making it a temple of divine worship. It is, in fact, a part of the body of Christ, spiritually speaking. Paul is applying this truth in a marriage relationship. So now he says, in a marriage relationship, the body of each mate is exclusive means by which each mate is defined sexual fulfillment. That is an integral, essential part of the marital relationship. In fact, one could say, it is the essence of marriage. Outside of marriage, that relationship is a sinful and sacrilegious desecration of the temple of the Holy Spirit. Are you getting this? Notice the emphasis on equality and mutuality. Ain't nothing but no headship of man in this. Nothing but headship of man in this. The whole emphasis... Is on equality and mutuality. I say again, this heavy stuff. I call this right theology. And because it is right theology, it should lead to right living. It's only when we believe what is wrong that we live a sinful life. In other words, as we say in our theology class, orthodoxy leads to Orthopraxy, orthopraxy. Orthodoxy, what we believe, leads to orthopraxy, what we do. Paul explains his theology of the body within the marriage relationship even in more detail. You say, what else could he say? Actually, he goes from preaching now to interfering. Maybe this is where I should stop. But I won't. 
verse 4, 1 Corinthians 7. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. The wife doesn't have power over her own body, but the husband has some power over it as well. Likewise, also, the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. See, the husbands like to leave this part out. Equality, mutuality. No one has superiority. Equal status. God is saying then that neither the husband or the wife has priority over the other in the bedroom. Now see, this is where so much mistake has been made today and the people who are talking on the talk shows. Even for some preachers, unfortunately. They're getting decided that because the husband is the head of the family, he could do anything with his wife sexually speaking. That is a sinful statement to make. Neither the husband or the wife has priority over the other in the bedroom. That's what he's saying. It is a mutual arrangement. Each other's body belongs to the other. Not only to themselves. None has exclusive rights or control over their body. The passage is teaching that our body is not only our body. Or my body. My body is not only my body. My body is our body in marriage. I call this the paradox of mutual exclusivity. My body is not mine, but Nancy's. That's why she didn't come out today. She didn't want to hear this. <laughs> no, not really. She's got upset stomach. That's right, right. But my body is not mine, but Nancy's. In other words, it's mine, but it's not mine alone. It's also hers. Her body is not hers alone. It is also mine. I cannot say that her body is mine alone. And therefore I can do what I want. When I want. With that body. Nor can she say concerning me. Whatever is done according to the word. When it comes to sexual activity amongst husband and wife. It must be by mutual agreement. Paul emphasizes responsibilities rather than rights. He doesn't focus on rights. He focuses on responsibilities, or another word is obligation. In marriage, fulfilling my mate and her fulfilling my needs is a marital obligation, marital responsibility. So here's how I paraphrase this verse to understand it. This is my expanded paraphrase. Neither spouse has exclusive rights, and I put it in quotes, to either give or withhold their body when it comes to the spousal satisfaction of God-given sexual needs. There's a lot of power keg words in there. Spousal satisfaction, God-given sexual needs. Each spouse share an equal responsibility in making themselves available to one another. No unilateral decision to engage in spousal sexual fasting is permissible. It's, many <laughs> it's amazing how common sexual fasting is in marriages. 
by a unilateral decision of one or other of the mates. Paul is saying that is wrong. Paul goes even deeper in verse 5. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. Boy, what a verse this is. This probably has caused more conflict within Christian marriages than any other. That's why we've got to understand it. So let's go at it. Phrase by phrase. Word. You got your Bible? Defraud you, not one another. I didn't write this last night. What does defraud mean? It means to steal from. It means to deprive something that rightfully, someone of something that rightfully belongs to them. Paul is therefore commanding Christian couples to stop teething from one another when it comes to sexual relationships. Stop teething. What is the teething made depriving the other one of? Sexual gratification given by God. That satisfaction belongs to them in the marriage relationship. Then you don't give it your teeth in. This is something that each spouse owes the other. It belongs to them. To withhold or not to give it to them, I say, is stealing. Doesn't the Bible say that? Doesn't the Bible say that? Now please don't go to says Pastor Lee says that. The Bible says you're defrauding, you're stealing, you're teething from one another. You're withholding something that belongs to that person. I want you to see the spiritual significance of this. You see, that's why earlier Paul implies that what the temple prostitutes were doing, that they were taking that which exclusively belonged to the spouses of the people. Now, the spouses who were giving it away, paying was given, was guilty of handling stolen goods. Whenever you commit adultery, you're handling stolen goods. You're selling stolen goods. Something that belonged to your wife, something that belonged to a husband, you've given it to somebody else to get something that don't belong to you in the first place. That's why Theologically speaking, we should call the forcing of a spouse to have sexual relations, spousal, strong-arm, sexual robbery. Spousal, strong-armed, sexual robbery, because that's exactly what has taken place. Paul then gives some exceptions to the rule that would make withholding your body from your mate spiritually legal. In other words, it's a way of having sexual fasting from your mate without defrauding them. I call these divine rules for spousal sexual fasting. Number one, first, 
says accepted be with consent. In other words, to fast sexually within a marriage, it must be by mutual agreement. Mutual agreement. Not, notice again, the emphasis on equality and mutuality. It's something that is ended into by mutual agreement. That's rule number one. Rule number two. Freud, you not one, the other, except to be good consent for a time. In other words, it must be for an agreed period of time only, not a permanent arrangement. You don't fast for life when it comes to sexual relationships. Third, when you do agree to have sexual fasting, it's got to be for a good reason. In fact, here, it says it must be for a spiritual reason. He says that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. I want you to see the level, the high pedestal that God places sexual relationships upon. This isn't just some frivolous act you do it anytime I know what I'm going to do. that. This is a spiritual action. The only time it should be interrupted is to do something good for God. Actually, in context, something good though. Because sexual relations are pretty good in marriage, right? Remember now, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Divine service is rendered here all the time. Now, I'm sure that the hermeneutical principles of Bible study would allow us to principalize, to universalize the principle here to include legitimate medical, psychological, or physical reasons as well. That's why in my study on this, uh, 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 this whole spousal abuse situation, in some places where this is being pressured now uh, to regard a forced uh, relations in a marriage as rape, some countries, rather than saying because the wife is unwilling or won't do it, they've cut the word she's unable to do it. That makes a big difference, doesn't it? Unable. Medical reasons, physical reasons, emotional reasons, whatever it be. I believe the principle, principle could be applied here as well. But then Paul gives a fourth condition for withholding sexual gratification from our mate. This time he gives a reason for it. He says, come together again that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. In other words, the fourth condition is that sexual feasting Feasting, not fasting. Sexual feasting must be resumed as quickly as possible. This is not something that goes on and on and on. Why? He says, so Satan doesn't tempt you. Now notice. This idea of the time length must be entered into by mutual agreement before the sexual fasting begins. You come together, all right, for whatever, whatever reason... It's going to be for this length of time. You don't get into it and then says, well, I can extend it. Because my head is really certain this time. You don't do that. You arrange it prior to the situation. And the reason is to avoid falling into Satan's temptation to cause you to commit adultery. Now, in context, it has to do with adultery with the temple prostitutes down the street for these Corinthians. But notice he says here, for your incontinency. It means because of your lack of control. In other words, you will be unable to 
restrain your desires. Paul later on calls it burning. He says these desires are real. The Bible teaches that God gives them. And they must be met. If they're not, certain things can happen. So the meeting of these needs is to be a regular, normal, ongoing experience. Saying no by either mate is abnormal unless mutually agreed upon. It's abnormal when it comes to marriage. It's an expected thing. So here's my expanded paraphrase of this. As paradoxical as it may sound, when it comes to sexual relations, the wife's body belongs to a husband as well as to her. And likewise, the husband's body belongs to his wife as well as to him. They share an equal mutual sexual ownership, ownership of their bodies. Therefore, neither one is to steal what belongs to the other by withholding their body from the other, unless it is by mutual agreement. And even then, it should only be for a brief period of time. And then only for the purpose of spending time with God or something that is equally legitimate. Then, they should resume normal, expected, consensual sexual relations before Satan has the opportunity to tempt them to commit adultery because of an even mutually agreed upon spousal sexual fasting. Now here is how I apply that to the situation today. It would also prevent possible spousal sexual abuse by one or the other spouses resorting to undue force or pressure to have his or her sexual needs met as designed by God. Notice carefully, sexual fasting on the part of one mate could lead to either sexual immorality and or spousal sexual abuse. When we fail to do what God tells us to do in marriage, when it comes to satisfying our spouse, it could lead one or the other to sin. Clear as that. And so I say to you that if followed, God's divine design for spousal sexual satisfaction absolutely and 100% avoids and prevents these sinful abnormalities in marriage to occur. 100% guarantee. Paul then gives a disclaimer in verse 6. But I speak this by permission and not a commandment. This was a lot of the fellows come. See there? You ain't got to take this seriously. For I would that all men were even as I myself, but every man hath his proper gift of God, one after the manner, one after this manner, and another after that. Now, without going into detail, here's my expanded power phase of these verses to help us understand what he's saying. Paul is saying something like this. However, let me make one thing clear. I am advising this period of sexual fasting. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about the ownership of the body. He's talking about stop having relationships. That's what he's talking about for a period of time. Let me make one thing clear. I am advising this period of sexual fasting as the prerogative of an apostle of Jesus Christ, not as a direct command from him. The normal and expected thing to do is for spouses to continue to enjoy their sexual experiences on an ongoing basis as mutually desired by them. However, personally speaking, I would prefer that everyone remained single and celibate as I am. Now, later on he says that's because of problems. Problems of um, persecution going on and the problems connected with caring for wife or caring for children. It's in context. 
Person speaking out before that everyone remains single and celibate, celibate as I am. That would save you all kinds, of, all kinds of problems. But that is not for me to decide. Everyone has to live according to their particular gifting from God, whether it is to be single or whether it is to be married. I believe that's what Paul is saying here. And so the strong implication in these passages is that God enables us to live according to his directives and desires in whatever situation of calling he may choose to place us. God enables us to do it in an honorable way. So let me close, and then we pick this up later this tonight, because we're going to look at it more closely from a practical point of view. Here's some derived principles. Sexual desires for the opposite sex are God-given. Two, these desires are only to be fulfilled within the marriage union. Three, marriage is God's divine method for avoiding sexual immorality, and we could say sexual abuse. Four, spouses have a mutual responsibility to provide sexual fulfillment of their mates and not to steal from them what is rightfully theirs. Five, sexually speaking, spouses' bodies belong first to God, then to their mates, and then to themselves. Six, spouses must, treat, spouses must treat the body of their mates as their own body, because it is. Now tonight I'm going to go into an extended teaching from here, especially in relationship to man. And we're going to look at Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. But let's stop at this time and let's bow in a word of prayer. Take a few moments for reflection. I know this has been a little intense because we're looking at the word and we've gone through it very carefully and very slowly but if God has spoken to you through his word and you need to make a commitment to him or ask forgiveness for something please do it right now between you and the triune God whatever it may be maybe it's a renewed commitment to your spouse because of your present relationship because Perhaps it's something you have to ask forgiveness for of your mate. Whatever it may be, take these few moments to do that right now in light of what God has said to you from his word. And we believe that his word will not return to him void. It will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent forth today. Father, may we as Christian spouses draw upon the indwelling Spirit of God to enable us to live as we have been directed in your word, especially in this passage that we have studied today. Cause us, we pray, as spouses to find complete fulfillment in our spouse, the spouse that you have given to us, and so that we might be satisfied with the mate, the spouse, that you've given us for a lifetime. Grant, we pray, that we might honor you in our bodies, especially in the marriage relationship. And all of God's people said, Amen.